Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast episode 367. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today we are talking all about how to care for yourself and your well being while dealing with difficult people at work. I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Gallo, a contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review, whose new book launches today called Getting Along How to Work with Anyone even difficult people. Now, Amy is back on the Bossed Up podcast after joining me on episode 264 back in 2020, all about the benefits of conflict in the workplace. And her new book takes that a step further by talking through how to actually deal with those difficult people who cause so much conflict in the workplace and beyond. She's the author of The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and a co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. Her articles have been collected in dozens of books on emotional intelligence, giving and receiving feedback, time management, and leadership. As a sought-after speaker and facilitator, Gallo has helped thousands of leaders deal with conflict more effectively and navigate complicated workplace dynamics. She's a graduate of Yale University and holds a master's from my alma mater, Brown University. Amy, it is so lovely to have you back on the podcast here with me today. Thank you so much for being here. It's nice to be back. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm delighted to dive into the topic of getting along at work, your new book, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And I want to first start off by asking, why do those relationships at work with challenging people have such an outsized impact on the rest of our lives? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think, well, there's two reasons. Number one, we have all have a negativity bias. Mm. So we could have 99% of our relationships at work could be positive, Mm -hmm. but that one coworker, if they're, you know, pushing our buttons, make, causing us stress, you know, making our day a little less enjoyable. That's what we're going to focus on. Mm. So, you know, I tell the story in the, in the book of receiving a, a snarky email from someone I had never met. Mm-hmm. And it kept me up for, you know, three nights in a row. I was thinking about this obnoxious thing this person said to me. You know, he actually said it was it was someone who was trying to to write for HBR where I'm an editor. Yeah. And I, I was he asked for a call and I just said, I'm sorry, I don't have the bandwidth. And he said, I, I can't handle your ego. I'm going to take my writing elsewhere. Yikes. You clear you clearly don't realize how important human connection is. Yikes. Yeah. Harsh, right? So but I can, I can, that email came to me two years ago Mm -hmm. and I can still tell you verbatim what it says. I probably received, you know, 400 other emails that day that were kind or neutral and I don't, can't remember them at all. Mm -hmm. So that's, our brains really focus on those negative 
interactions. Mm. You know, the second thing is there's tons of research that shows the physical impact of having negative or even toxic relationships. So we actually feel those negative interactions, that snarky email, of someone rolling their eyes, mm. someone challenging you or dismissing you or interrupting you in a meeting. We feel that in the same way that we feel pain. So it's really hard to get over it. And I think sometimes we think, well, it's just in our head. Oh, that's a small thing. But we actually feel it physically. Right. And lots of studies showing the negative impact to our health of those types of rude, uncivil behavior. I can almost imagine like my blood pressure rising, right? My face getting flush, palms getting right. sweaty. We have that sort of stress response, don't we, to That's right. aggression or microaggression, even in the form of a passive aggressive email like that. And That's it right. is hard to disrupt that, isn't it? You know, it's hard it to remember that you're having a natural physiological response in that moment, no matter how much your brain is trying to rationalize it, right? Right. And and it's also, it, it feels like, wait, why why am I having this reaction, right? right? Like we start, we often start questioning, like, why, can, why does this bother me so much? Why yeah. can't I just get over it? Because we see other people around us who seem fine. And then we start making up this story mm. of, oh, I'm too sensitive or, mm. um, you know, I don't know how to handle these things or I cause the problem. Yeah. And and really, like you said, it's just a normal physiological response when we sense a threat yeah. or a rupture in the harmony that we expect with our coworkers. Yeah, and I want to underscore how much those labels that we have for ourselves, like being too sensitive or taking things too personally, they feel like they have a gendered component there, don't they? Because they do. being labeled emotional in your response at work is certainly something that gets levied towards women slightly differently in a way than folks of other genders. So right. why do you think that's important for women leaders and women in the workplace specifically to understand and sort of accept as a natural human reaction? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think being told that we're too emotional at work is just, it's, it's one of the most insidious microaggressions yeah. because the truth is we are all emotional. Right. We have emotions. This idea that we walk into work or log onto a laptop and somehow leave that um, our emotional selves behind is just absurd. Right. It's outdated. And so other, everyone's having, no matter what your gender is, yeah. you're having emotional reactions. It's just, and so to pretend that one gender right. has that more than others, I just think is unfair. Yeah. And it's just, and it's unfair to, to people who don't identify as a woman. And it's right. unfair to a man for to expect them not to have an emotional response totally. to something that is a very normal a reaction yeah. to to something happening. Totally. It's so diminutive, isn't it? Like so saying diminutive. like, oh, emotions are so bad if they come from a woman, God forbid. And then when a That's man right. exhibits similar behavior, it's like, wow, he's so passionate. He really exactly. cares. So that are so vulnerable. How oh, brave how of him. Brave. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's always that you're right to use the word insidious, because that is a microaggression and a gendered double standard that's really hard to pinpoint because it's so easy to internalize this as a personal failure and not a systemic issue, yeah. right? Well, and one of my other pet peeves is telling people like when they experience uncivil yeah. or rude behavior at work, oh, to just ignore it, just move on, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because it's, it, we can't deny the yeah. impact it has on us. And I think it, you're, you're actually asking people to sort of deny their humanness right. in, in, by doing that. And, and, you know, we have to process that yeah. reaction, that, that snarky email I got from that author, you know, it kept me up 
three nights in a row yeah. probably actually meant more than that. But but I had to process it. Yeah. I had to sort of – because it made me doubt. I'm like, wait, do I care about human connection? Right. Am I a nice person? Right. right. And it made me – and, you know, I'm sure someone would say, oh, someone with a thicker skin wouldn't have been bothered by it at all. I'm like, okay, that's not my skin. Right. <laughs> you know, I, it bothered me and I had to I had to process it, realize what does this actually mean for me? Right. And next time I get an email like that, I do think I'll probably – I probably will still lose a little sleep, but hopefully it'll be two nights instead of three. I right. think that's a great point uh, in terms of making progress for yourself. Right. I also think it gets complicated when these pe- are people who have more power over you than that instance. So I want to share with yeah. you an example that came up recently in our Level Up Leadership Accelerator here at Bostop. One of our clients who is a woman leader herself who inherited a team – in a large bureaucratic environment, happened to be in higher education. Uh, mm-hmm. She inherited a team with three direct reports, two of whom did not feel like she deserved to be in that position of leadership, one of whom yeah. was so antagonistic and, frankly, was usurping her power and actively like pulling against her direction to the point mm-hmm. where she spent the last six months trying to make the case to get this person terminated for a complete lack of fulfilling Mm. their basic fundamental duties on the job, which is very hard to do in a large bureaucracy. Um, And so I've worked with this this woman leader for the past six months. And to your point that you make early on in this book, like her entire life feels affected negatively by this one difficult person right I mean they've they've thought about moving they've thought about selling their house Mm. they've thought about leaving the industry and she worked really hard to get into a position of leadership and it feels so thankless like why when when women find themselves in this kind of a position you know you make a really Mm -hmm. good case in your book for how to deal with those folks but where Mm -hmm. does prioritizing your well-being and having yeah. resilience fit into this whole conversation. Because I think yeah. it's a really important angle of dealing with difficult people that you talk about brilliantly in this book. Yeah. Well, you know, I will say the, the you know, I talk about this concept of interpersonal resilience in the book mm. and, and really being able to bounce back from those negative interactions a little bit more quickly to feel less stress mm. when you're when you're deep in them. And truthfully, the best way to build interpersonal resilience is to try to address some of these interactions, try to address your relationship. It won't always go well, but you'll learn something from it. And that's really the point of resilience is that over time, you have more reps of, of, you know, how do I address that rude comment? How do I... Um, you know, handle someone who's trying to undermine me. Mm. Again, it won't always be successful because as you point out in that person's experience, sometimes the bureaucracy is just too much. Sometimes that person is absolutely incapable of change. And, you know, I, I do share tons of tactics in the book, but I also don't promise that they'll work all the time. And so it's really about where do you, how do you protect yourself? Mm -hmm. And I do think I do think the the key is to really set limits yeah. of how long are you going to stay, mm-hmm. right? If this things don't change, like, and don't don't make that a moving goalpost, right? right? Like, tell yourself it's three months, it's six months, it's eight months, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and stick to that. Also, tr- try to focus on the relationships that do bring you joy, yeah. because you know, as we were talking about earlier, because of that negativity bias, yeah, that woman might have relationships with 
people, her peers, her other people in different departments, her boss that are positive. Yeah. And it, it, those get overshadowed by the negative ones, especially if there's like one that's really difficult. Yeah. And so trying to really think about, okay, wait, most of my relationships are very positive. That, but this one, and then giving it giving it a box. I mean, one of the things I try to do when I'm dealing with someone um, who's really pushing my buttons or, or trying to undermine yeah. me is I give myself a certain amount of time each day to think about them. And then I say, that's it, right? And I, and I do let myself, like I'll even set a timer. I have 15 minutes mm-hmm. where I can think about all the ways in which this is like so unbearable yeah. and so uncomfortable, but then I have to move on. Yeah. And once that timer's up, you put it away. And I, I even have I have some coaching clients who will write everything and then just actually put it in an envelope and slip it in a drawer and say, okay, that's I'm not, I can I'll go back to that tomorrow when I have my next fifteen minutes, but I'm not going to let it consume or eat up my entire day. Yeah, I love that strategy because so often what we really need in those moments is an opportunity to vent to be heard by someone, even if it's just our own journal pages or our partner and like really giving yourself that limit of, I cannot allow this one person to have an outsized influence on the entirety of my life experiences right now. And that that is a muscle memory type exercise, isn't it? Of of building resilience so that you can not over extrapolate perhaps uh, in terms of how much much importance we give this one relationship, which can be difficult. Yes, and that's that. You, the over extrapolate point is so important. I'm so glad you said that, Emily, because I think what we then tend to do is we we tend to think we're good at relationships mm. based on our worst interactions. Mm. So I'm sure that that woman you're talking about, that leader you're talking about, thinks she she's not great at handling difficult people right. because of this one situation, or she's incapable yes. of leading because she has this one difficult person. But that's not indicative Mm. of her skills and of her capabilities. That's indicative of that person's issues. Absolutely. So let's talk about that specifically because I think we have a tendency to personalize these relationships and these interactions. Mm -hmm. And you make a really great point in the book about how to try to protect yourself and your own leadership identity against that. And I'll give you Mm -hmm. an example of a job search client of ours who just went through a hired accelerator. She came to us after rising in the ranks in big pharma where she was managing a team of researchers and multiple labs. And despite the fact that she was under-resourced for many years, overburdened, that everybody in her manager level was quitting and she was sort of left holding the bag. They kept throwing money at her and they said, please don't quit. You know, we really Mm. need you. And she was so burnt, so fried, so exhausted and so feeling underappreciated and just not set up for success that when she landed her next job, she specifically sought out a position that did not involve people management at whatsoever. Mm. She took a 20% or $20,000 pay cut. She got a researcher position in a lab and she mm. took that you know sought after that relative demotion if you will because yeah. she was so traumatized from what leadership entailed yeah. in a very toxic environment or a, a really challenging environment. So I wonder you know what would you say from folks who wonder Am I cut out for leadership based on the challenging relationships that I've been desperately trying to manage and without a lot of success? Like, how do we not internalize that? How do we not personalize that? Well, I I will say that client of yours, I actually think 
it's a relatively good coping mechanism and actually was probably pretty brave of her to take that relative demotion because I think a lot of times people don't do that. They think the next thing is to manage a bigger and bigger team and and rather than saying, you know what, this isn't for me, they they just keep going and Mm -hmm. make themselves miserable. Now, that said, it does sound like she's making that decision, as you said, on one toxic environment. Mm. And so I do think it's important to, to, to broaden your lens yeah. and say, okay, I feel like I'm not cut out for management because, mm. or leadership because of this situation. But how have I coped or performed in different situations, mm. right? So, you know, if you have a team of seven and two people are, are you really struggle to manage, it can be easy to say, well, I'm not cut out for this, yeah. but there's five people who you're managing very well, right? So focus on that and try to make sure you're not, again, using the worst case scenario as the indication mm. of what you're actually capable of. So I would, and and I also would, instead of relying on your own interpretation of mm. your capabilities and skills, go out and ask people, yeah. ask a former colleague, ask a former mentor, um, you know, ask people you manage now, ask your boss now, what do you think my best skills are, mm. right? Where do you think I struggle? Get that feedback because oftentimes we just rely on the typical, I can imagine this client in big pharma, right? There's a bureaucratic performance management system right? that she's probably getting some feedback, yeah. but I would really go to people she trusts and she relies on, yeah. ask them three simple questions. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And where do you see me at my best, mm. right? What contexts in which do I thrive? Yeah. And I think that that can be really helpful to get a, a, a clearer sense of what you're actually capable of. I do totally. hope that client of yours does find that she wants to go back to right, people management right. in a different environment because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us are drawn to those positions for very good reasons. Right. And it's too often that these negative you know, our toxic situations just really cut cut us down in a way that we don't pursue them. Further. Right. And and I think your point is valid in that it doesn't need to be a permanent decision one way or the other. Right. Like, that's right. look, that's right. You know, you can take a breather if that's what you need right now to recover, to re almost like reinterpret that story you're telling yourself about what you're capable of that's and then right. try again if it suits you. Because I think she's going to find a lot of success in her new environment. And frankly, I, I don't think it'll be long before she finds herself managing others there. So yes. it's certainly yeah. an interesting reaction and one that you and I, even though we're in the business of looking at evidence and research and giving advice that's very practical, like it's really not up to either one of us to tell any woman, like, here's what you should do to continuously right. rise. It's like, I'm postpartum almost a year, and I'm reestablishing my own relationship to my own ambition, as so many are right now. And it's like, look, well-being has to factor in, and it absolutely has to be a part of the equation for for all of us. Yes, and and I think as as women, we're often um, told by you know society that that we really have to do what others expect of us rather than what we actually want to do it's just the way we're socialized and so it's very easy especially if you're ambitious Mm -hmm. to look at okay well this is what I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to move into a management role I'm supposed to take on a bigger team and then a bigger team and then you know do something that's cross enterprise and 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 sometimes that's not what you want at all totally and and it's important to just 
ask yourself, what is it that I want? Mm. What is it that will make me feel satisfied, fulfilled, Mm -hmm. will take care of my well-being and pursue that path? And that alone is a good enough reason to pursue it. Yes. Like that alone because I want to because I don't want to. Um, Those are reasons enough, you know, to make your next move in the direction you want to go in. So I love that. You know, one of the ways I think that socialization really shows up in your work and has for years is as it relates to conflict and gender Mm -hmm. in particular, because we have been socialized to try to make everyone happy, to try to be well-liked. And we know that likability matters, but you can't Mm -hmm. please them all. And you certainly can't please them all at the same time as you're pleasing what you want out of your career and what you expect from yourself. So I guess my my big question here for you is, and we've talked about this on our last interview, right, around mm-hmm. how conflict can be a really healthy thing at work. That's right. How do we, especially as women in the workplace, deprogram ourselves after mm-hmm. a lifetime of being socialized that it is important to make everyone happy with you, that conflict yeah. is bad, that – you know, dealing with difficult people should, at the end of the day, be about making them happy, placating them. Like, how do we reframe our whole approach to managing conflict with difficult people? Yeah. I mean, it, this is tricky because on the one hand, I would love I would love to come up with, you know, some frame in which we're like, it doesn't matter if people are mad at us. In fact, I have a mantra that I actually share in my TEDx talk, like, sometimes people will be mad at you mm. and that's okay. But we also have to be very aware that the research shows that when we are agentic, you know, as, as the literature calls it, or assertive, yeah. we advocate for ourselves, we do experience a penalty. Yeah. And so I don't want to go out there and say, you know, go for it, be as assertive, ask for what you want, because we know that you you are likely to suffer some yeah. some consequences for doing that. What I would say is that a better approach to conflict is to think about how to resolve the problem at hand Mm -hmm. in a collaborative way. Mm -hmm. And that's important for anyone of any gender to do, but it's more imperative for women to do Mm -hmm. because that's what's expected of us is that we will care about the collective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about how do I approach this problem? How do I solve this conflict in a way that advocates for myself, but that also shows concern and genuine concern for the collective. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean putting yourself in your boss's shoes and trying to help them right. do everything they need to do. It just means being having the social awareness that what you're asking for will have consequences for others. That doesn't mean you downgrade your request. Right. You just keep that in mind as you're negotiating and trying to find a solution that works mm. for all. How interesting. Yeah. I always think of this as putting the problem before the team, right? Like, let's say you have a conflict with someone in particular. You're looking at the problem together, saying, how do we solve for this versus between the two of you, right? So That's right. You've talked. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that's one of the principles I share in the book. In in chapter 11, nine principles for getting along with anyone is to avoid the us versus them mentality Mm. because that – and again, that's incredibly important for women because that sets us up to be more assertive or um, antagonistic, which – which most is usually not an acceptable behavior for right. women in most contexts, unfortunately. Um, but if you see yourselves just as you were describing, yeah. of like it's me and this person on the same side of the table, we're solving a problem together. Yeah. And that problem might be my salary is too low. That problem might be our relationship because we don't we are having a lot of tension. Yeah. It might be 
the business issue at hand, right? Mm -hmm. it, whatever that problem is, you're solving it together. And that mental model, I think, can really help take down some of the, the both the, the antagonism, but the competition yeah. that's inherent and really try to focus on how do we do this together. Not to mention your ego and how, you know, the I hear from so many people, they just don't value me, right? Or they've disrespected mm -hmm. me. And then it's all about them and their ego. And as much as that is valid and true, and that might be your truth and you're feeling disrespected, you're feeling defensive, you're feeling all of these things, like that does not make for a great negotiation, does it? That mindset. That's right. So, That's right. Well, because think about it. If you're si sitting there focused on your ego, right. they're focused on theirs. Right. Right. Where do you have to go from there? So yeah. trying to really, you know, classic Harvard negotiation project of like trying to separate the person from the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. This isn't about this isn't about me and my value. This is what is it I actually want from this? Right. right? What is it? And maybe you want to feel valued. Sure, that's fair. Yeah. But what is it you need to do that? Right. Is it that you do need that salary? Is it that you need those opportunities? Is it that you need the flexibility you've been yeah. requesting for the entire pandemic and not getting it. like yeah. whatever yeah. it is, you know, focus on that thing yeah. and and not the story around it. Totally. So you've you've talked a bit about different kinds of conflict. I'd love to get mm -hmm. your take on that because I think that's really helpful framing for those of us mm -hmm. who are thinking about how to deal with these difficult people at work. What what are the different types of conflict you would encourage readers to consider? Yeah, and actually this is from my first book, The H-Bear Guide to Dealing with Conflict, right. where I talk about four different types of conflict. Mm -hmm. And one is relationship conflict. That's where you and the other person are disrespecting each other mm. or dismissing each other. You know, we often think of that as like personality clashes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this new book, Getting Along, focuses on those types of relationship yeah. conflicts. However, I do think oftentimes beyond or underneath the relationship conflict it's one of the three others that are going on yeah. um you know so one of the most common is task conflict that's a disagreement over what you're actually trying to achieve the goal you know process conflict disagreeing over the how so maybe we agree on the goal but mm. we're actually not agreeing on how to get there and then there's status conflicts mm. which are often tricky of who actually gets to make the call who's in charge here and i think and as you were saying, knowing those different types of conflict yeah. can often help rather than just feeling overwhelmed with this person and I are not getting along or we're having this conflict or we're in this fight, right? It's like, okay, what's actually happening yeah. here? And if I can pull at the different threads, I can then decide, okay, how am I going to address the task conflict? How am I yeah. going to address the status conflict? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it addressing one and i often if there's task and process conflict involved i suggest starting there because they tend to be more straightforward sure um sometimes that will take care of some of the other types mm. of conflict interesting do you feel like in a hybrid or remote environment that so many knowledge workers in particular find themselves in these days that conflict has become easier or harder to address and do you think it's become more rampant or less rampant i wonder you know, it's funny. I've been waiting for some research to come out about this because I'm really, I'm very curious. I and I haven't seen it, but I'll, I'll, I will tell you what I, I really believe. And actually, my co-host on the the Women at Work podcast, Amy B, said at one point early in the pandemic, it was so clear to me, I, or so vivid to me when she said mm. this. She said, "This pandemic has turned on the lights in the room, and we're seeing the cracks, and we're seeing the cobwebs, and we can never turn the lights off mm -hmm. again." And I think that's true for we were talking about gender equity. 
at the time, but I think it's true for everything. So if you had an intense or difficult or, you know, tense relationship with someone you work with, mm-hmm. I'm guessing this remote and hybrid environment has made that worse. Mm. Um, if you had a strong relationship, it might have actually brought you closer. Mm. And so I do think it's it's really intensified mm. reactions. The, the also, I, I don't have to tell you or your listeners this, but, you know, these ways we communicate, whether it's Zoom, whether yeah. it's Slack, whether it's email, they are just ripe for miscommunication <laughs> yeah. and misunderstanding, <laughs> right? Because we don't oh, have all way. the nuance of facial expressions and context and the room we're sitting, we're not sharing yeah. the same weather, right? All it, And truthfully, you know, we feel less human mm. as these little boxes on a screen. So we're not relying or deploying the empathy that we often do when we are sitting with someone face to face. So I do think in many ways the conflict has gotten, I think a lot of conflicts have been allowed to fester Mm. and gone unaddressed. Mm -hmm. I think we're probably miscommunicating, misunderstanding each other a lot more. And we don't have the opportunities to smooth things over the way we used to. So if we sat in a meeting and you and I had a, got, you know, got heated in a debate about something, we would have the hallway conversation afterwards to be like, you know, Emily's smiling at me. Okay. I think things are fine. We don't have any of that now. Totally. We just shut the screen and then we're left in this void yeah. of wondering what's happened. Yeah. So I, I do think it's gotten a lot harder to address yeah. issues that come up. And, you know, and it. I just think it's, it. you know, unfortunately you can, you know, use all the emojis you want in Slack yeah. or an email, like, but it doesn't convey no. the same nuance that we convey with our faces and our tone of voice. That's so interesting. So- how do you advise people to think about taking responsibility to manufacture in a remote world that hallway conversation? Because yeah. so often it feels like you're telling us to be the adult in the room. And yes. I think a lot of folks are like, I don't really want to fly high when they go up. <laughs> or like, I don't really have the energy to manage up when my boss is having a bad day. Or like, right. deal with this passive aggressive partner in my coalition that I'm managing by like, yeah. who am I? Who You know, it's not my job to make right. this relationship better necessarily. I don't have any formal authority here. So how would sure. you inspire others to remind us why it's worth it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how to assert that power or take on that responsibility, even when you don't feel like you have explicit authority to try and repair a relationship? Yes. Such a good question because I I do really, in the book, call on people to be the adult in the room. And I also understand that feeling of like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't don't think you have to do that. I don't think it's it's imperative you do that. And, and, And unfortunately, I think as women, we are often expected to be the ones. The cleanup that. crew, fact, the emotional ex- cleanup crew, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> That's right. And I actually, I just spoke to someone um, recently who said that they, you know, they went to their um, boss to com- to lodge a complaint and in, in a really fair one about this, this man who she works with mistreating her. And the reaction was, well, it was basically, I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically like, well, you can handle it. Yeah, work it out. Exactly. Yeah. Or or more like as the woman in this dynamic, your ego isn't as sensitive. So you can actually just like, you'll be okay, but I don't want to raise it with him because he might get upset. I mean, it's just oh, the whole man. thing. Is absurd. This feels like a schoolyard uh, bully and the girls uh, in the classroom being told to just ignore them. 
Exactly. Right? Like, but exactly. It, now we're all grown up and the same stuff is happening. And we've been taught since kindergarten to just like, don't pay attention to Billy when he's pushing you in the playground because he just likes you. He just likes right? you. Right? That's he just my like, yes. makes you exactly. mad. It makes me want to explode. But yeah. It's like, yeah, we're taught to, to, to be careful around others' egos yeah. from the very beginning. And I think that's that continues. And now, and I, I want to be clear, some of my advice in the book can sound like that. Yeah. But I only want you to choose to do that when it helps you. Yeah. So this is not, you're not doing this out of kindness or generosity, although I think those are good things. You're doing this because it's strategic for you. Mm. And if being in the adult in the room doesn't help you, then don't do yeah. it. Save Absolutely. it for another day <laughs> exactly. when you're exactly. going to need that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so like if it helps you get what you need, you know, I, th- I think back to the situation you explained earlier of the, the client in higher ed, yeah. you know, if, if it helps her achieve what she wants to achieve to placate that direct yeah. report and, and really work with them to figure out how to how to make them a productive member of the team, great. If it doesn't, continue to figure out how to get them Off fired. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And or decide you need to move on. Yeah. And I think honestly, it's funny, I think quitting a job is often overrated and underrated. Mm. And I think it's an underrated option in that it feels People don't want to give up. Right. It feels like a failure. Exactly. But I also, and and I do think that it's, um, it can be really hard to to do, to to accept that failure. Right. But it's not your failure. Like in that that client's example, the failure is on behalf of the organization. Exactly. For not helping her succeed. So the organization failed her. Quitting is a very normal response. Yeah, to that. I love that. For some reason, I'm reminded of all of my friends who've ever lived in New York City, where mm-hmm. by the culture of New York City is such that if you choose to leave New York City, it's like, oh, so you can cut it here. And like <laughs> the survivors' like pressure or whatever of staying right. in the city has kept so many people who I know who are brilliant and awesome, like staying in miserable situations to stay in New York because they don't want to look right. like a quitter. Well, and I'm like, what is going on that's here? Right. As someone who left New York City yeah. <laughs> okay. a, a long time ago, I can tell you, yes. And it, it felt like that. I was just like, oh my God, I'm getting... And I moved to, to Providence, Rhode Island and it felt so cush. I was like, I can afford to buy a house here. Like, mm-hmm. it feels like, you know, like so many things felt... But, but it did feel like, oh, I left. I yeah. quit. I couldn't hack it. Yeah. And the truth is, I couldn't hack it. Right. And, and also, it's really should I? It's not easy to <laughs> hack it in New York City. Like, it's pretty hard. You have to kind of martyr yourself for the city. So I get that. Yeah. 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 But, I, but that's exactly what I don't want people to do is to feel like, oh, I have to be the adult in the room. I have to be the martyr. Um, I just – I want people to use these tactics when mm. it benefits them. Absolutely. And – and and never never before n- never putting them themselves second right. in that in that equation. You know, I do require I very say this very explicitly that having empathy for the other person is really important. Yeah. But if you do that at the expense of yourself, mm-hmm. like don't do it. And 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 it's okay to say, you know what? This person is making my life miserable. I have zero empathy for them. Right. That's fine. It's okay to do that. Yeah. And in fact, one of my, I mean, talk about preserving your well-being. One of my um, sort of favorite tactics, it's not very nice, but when you're dealing with a difficult person is just to remind yourself every day they have to wake up as their miserable selves. Yeah. And every day I get to wake up as me. Yeah. And, and I just think that's, you know, 
it sometimes that's just the sort of self-preservation yep you need you need to to survive yeah it's funny i was looking at the very end um of the last couple chapters of the book in particular really hit on this in which you sort of talk about is it disengagement but like in a strategic way yeah setting boundaries yeah Yeah. setting boundaries but also just like creating the best subculture you can in your own sphere of influence and then suppressing your emotions to some extent right like giving yourself permission to say I'm not engaging in this like I'm not reacting to that someone on social media I saw recently went viral for saying I am choosing not to accept that energy into my world, right? Like your tornado, your little like blur that circles around you, that misery. I'm just like, I see it. I can understand where it's coming from for you. I'm not going to invalidate your experience, but I'm also not going to make your experience my experience. Yeah. That can be very radical. Yeah, that's right. And I I actually share the advice in the book, um, Michelle Michelle Gielen, who wrote um, Broadcasting Happiness, has this, I think she calls it like the five-minute drill. Mm -hmm. So if you're dealing with someone who's really difficult, like an extreme pessimist or know-it-all, and just your interactions with them make you miserable, you say to yourself, okay, what do I need from them? Mm -hmm. How can I get it in five minutes? You do something... Um, that helps sort of build your resilience beforehand, whether it's like looking at pictures of your baby on your phone, talking to a colleague you like, you go do the five minutes, you come out, do something again that replenishes you, and you're done. It's like you put on your hazmat suit emotionally and then go in and deal with this toxic person. Your emotional hazmat suit. That's perfect. I love it. I love it. Well, Amy, I want to make sure we're respectful of your time because I could obviously talk to you all day. What is one key tactic from the book that you want to make sure every woman in the workplace has in her arsenal for emotional resilience when dealing Mm -hmm. with difficult people? You've talked about a bunch already, but like what is one final tactic, tool, or takeaway you hope everyone can gain from this? Yeah, I will say there's one of the principles in the chapter um, on nine principles for getting along with anyone is about experimentation. Mm. And I think that is treating these relationships as a science experiment where you try tactics, see what works, learn from it, move on to another tactic, see what works, learn from it. I just think that that sort of approach can make it much easier, much less overwhelming. And then, and through that, it's through that experimentation that you then build the resilience you need for not just that one relationship, but for all of your relationships. I love that, that iterative process of like depersonalizing it. It's not, oh my gosh, they hate me, I hate them. It's let's try this new tactic. Let's try this experiment and see what happens. That's such a great way of framing it. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the podcast again and walking us through some of the inspiration behind getting along how to work with anyone which is out today where can folks get their hands on your brand new book and where can they learn more about you yeah they can get the book anywhere they buy books so their favorite local bookstore their if they don't have it ask them to order it of course amazon hbr.org has a store where you can buy it as well and if you want to stay in touch, you can go to my website, amyegallo.com. I have a monthly newsletter where I share tips and advice about communication, conflict, and gender. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy, for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Emily. This has been really fun. For links and resources to everything Amy and I just talked about, head to bostup.org episode 367. That's bossedup.org slash episode 367. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. 
Hi there. This is Krista Salna, Falstaff Level Up alum from Washington, D.C., calling in to share my boss move of the week. Halfway through BOSS's six-month Level Up Leadership cohort, I switched jobs and took on a new role as Associate Director at a nonprofit organization I love. I struggled for most of my decade-long career as a lawyer in public interest law and nonprofit work on how to get promoted, so I began working with Emily on that goal in my executive coaching calls and during Level Up to lay a solid foundation for promotion in my new job. Two months later, I received the amazing news that I would be promoted from associate director to director at the end of the fiscal year, just over four months since starting my new job. I owe it to Boss Up and Emily for helping me gain confidence in myself as a leader, identify and lean into my personal leadership style, express my value add, and communicate assertively. As a female leader, it isn't easy to balance warmth and competency. Thank you, Emily, and Boss Up for showing me the way. Krista, that is so amazing. I am so proud of you and all of the ways that you've leveled up through our Leadership Accelerator and through your hard work and risk-taking. It's so amazing to see how many ways you've applied what we cover in the Leadership Accelerator to your career and leveling up in your life. Congratulations, boss. And thank you for sharing your story. You really never know who you're inspiring when you share your own come up story. So if you've got a boss move to share and want to be featured on an upcoming episode, just give us a call and leave us a voicemail on the Bossed Up Podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. You can also find a link in today's show notes where you can schedule a time to have a mini interview with me and we can talk through your boss move of the week together. And as the motto goes of America's first black women's clubs, established way back in 1896, let's keep lifting as we climb. Until next time, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose and together let's lift as we climb.